The cancer journey is unique for everyone. It's time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to Unspoken Cancer Truths with John Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to episode 40 of Unspoken Cancer Truths. I'm your host, Jen Cochran. Last week, I talked a little bit about all the doctors we acquire as part of this cancer ride. For this week's episode, I plan to talk about the recommended schedule for checkups and screenings. I have to say that the more I dug into this, the more bothered I became. As a breast cancer patient diagnosed in 2016, I benefited from every day of research on HER2-positive, hormone-positive breast cancer that had occurred up until that time. My treatment was based on the facts of that research. One of the most frustrating things about the last nine months we've been living through with coronavirus has been the mixed messages about how to reduce our risk for ourselves and for others. When we're told a variety of different things, it creates a buffet of choices, and people choose the one they like the best, not necessarily the one that's actually the best. The reality is that we need to understand what's being said, who is saying the thing, and what angle they may have. Know who's paying for the research or what financial benefit the thing may be attached to. Follow the money. And understand how many other reputable sources have peer-reviewed the data and agree with what's being said, either positively or negatively, and why specifically they feel that way. The why matters. A couple of years ago, I was at an event There was a lady at my table who pursued alternative treatment for her triple negative breast cancer. She had shared with our table the alternative treatment she received, which in reality was totally different from my type of breast cancer with totally different, let's call them mainstream treatment protocols. Someone at the table asked her why she made the choice she had. And she said that she believes that Big Pharma has a cure for cancer that they're not sharing because the drugs they sell are more profitable than telling people how not to get cancer. I then said my cancer was totally different from hers and I respected her choice of alternative treatment. In my case, her septin was a real game changer for her two positive cancer, reducing the risk of recurrence and increasing overall longevity exponentially over the past decade. I then said in this case, I would say big pharma for the win. And I'll tell people with HER2 positive breast cancer to do this immunotherapy every day of the week. Her response was, then we don't need to be friends. We didn't need to be friends. Hmm. This is really the challenge we face with coronavirus right now, isn't it? There's this idea of I believe what I want to believe and what you believe is wrong if it's different from what I believe. And science is out the window if what you believe doesn't mesh with what the science is learning. The thing about research is that we're learning more about so many things every day. 
And every scientific study ends with the same words. More research is necessary. A while back, I read an interesting article, and I apologize, I can't remember the source or the author. It was a cancer research scientist writing about why we haven't cracked the cure for cancer. And it makes a lot of sense. In the most simplistic of descriptions, from a non-medical perspective, it went something like this. Basically, the body is made up of trillions of cells. Cells replicate and cells die. And on occasion, a cell makes a mistake. Then that cell, with the mistake, may replicate at a faster rate than it dies, which causes a growth of cells that may form into a tumor. Trillions of cells with the potential to make mistakes. Simplistic, yes, but if you look at lymphoma, for example, there are so many types. There's Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's. There are 40-plus types of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. That's a lot of variety and potential for mistakes at the cellular level. Then look at our lifestyle, our environment, our exposure to pollution, our genetics. All these things have the ability to influence our body on the cellular level. I've met so many people on this road who were young and fit and shocked to find out they had cancer. Which brings me back to my topic this week of the basic schedule for checkups and screenings. The more I looked for a standard quote-unquote schedule of recommended screenings, the more I felt like healthcare, especially in this time of coronavirus, looks more like a choose-your-own-adventure novel than a healthcare guide for dummies. When I started my search, I expected to find a few definite things. I expected to find that everyone should have a general adult physical annually. I did not find that. What I found was age 19 to 21 needed a physical every two to three years, 22 to 64 every one to three years, and once a year over 60, with the caveat that if you are one of the 144 million Americans with one or more chronic conditions, you should work with your doctor to create a custom checkup schedule. In addition, there was a recommendation for all ages to have a blood pressure screening every two years and cholesterol screening every five years starting at 40. What? No wonder more young people are having cardiac events and strokes are on the rise. Every other year to check blood pressure? That seems crazy. My cholesterol has been checked annually since I was 18. It's not particularly low or high, but I have a definitive baseline that's been consistent. And we only know that because those tests have been being done regularly for a long period of time. So here's the facts on annual physicals. Insurance covers them annually. Thank you, Affordable Care Act. Not every two or three years, but annually. If you have insurance, you're currently entitled to get a physical 
that you essentially already paid for with your premiums. So go and get it every year. Kaiser Health conducted a poll where 92% of Americans believe it's important to get an annual physical, yet only 62% were actually going out and getting them. And that was before coronavirus. I've been hearing some disturbing numbers about how annual physicals and screenings are really down. I'm going to talk a little bit more about those in a few minutes. If you've not had a physical in the past year or the date is getting close, call and schedule that physical. Doctor's offices are open. If you're a woman, you should have a well woman visit annually. As long as you're seeing your doctor regularly, they should be able to guide you in terms of the tests you should have based on your lifestyle and health and family history. There has been some discussion in recent years about mammograms. The recommended starting age for annual mammograms is floating between 40 and 50. As a very healthy person whose first mammogram was her last at age 43, I am bothered by the American Cancer Society adjusting their recommendation from 40 to 45. The CDC still says start at 40. Let's do that. I have met way too many early 40-somethings being diagnosed with breast cancer. Otherwise healthy, active people. There's no reason to wait. 10 minutes of discomfort is worth the peace of mind. If you're 40 or over, schedule those mammograms. A false positive, while definitely stressful for a couple of weeks, is better than a missed cancer that becomes more difficult to treat the longer it has to take hold. I heard this week some alarming statistics about mammograms during COVID. Mammograms are down 62% since March of 2020. And breast cancer diagnosis is down 52% in 2020. Now, over the past decade, breast cancer diagnosis has risen slightly every year. So the number of people being diagnosed has been a bit higher every year. Which means breast cancer is still happening. It's just not being diagnosed because people are getting behind on doing these screenings Please, 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 let's get out and get those screenings done. Now let's talk about age. A client of mine a little over a year ago said that her general practitioner told her that since she's 75, she no longer needed mammograms or colonoscopies. This is an active, vital, healthy person. She asked me what I thought, and I said, well... You're an active person, and the number one risk for breast cancer is age. I would keep doing them. Obviously, it's your choice. So here she was, faced with one of these choose-your-own-adventure selections of do the screening or not do the screening. She did choose to stick with the screenings, and I'm glad because even though it was a bit overdue this year, they saw something suspicious, and now it can be dealt with. If you're overdue, call, get the order, get your mammogram. Let's talk about colonoscopies, the dreaded topic of colonoscopies. 
Again, this is a screening that if done at the necessary intervals can save lives. I have the hard numbers on that in a few minutes. My husband's family has a history of colon cancer, and when he had his first screening, it wasn't fun, but the prep was not as bad as he thought it would be, and I barely had time to sit down, open my laptop, and write one email before the nurse came out to tell me they were done and he was being brought back to recovery. Now he doesn't need to go back for 10 years unless something changes, and we don't need to worry about that particular piece of family history for a while. I was working with a breast cancer client a few weeks ago, and she commented that she had a colonoscopy coming up. She's 14 years a survivor of HER2 positive breast cancer, diagnosed very young, early 30s. She's also a nurse. She said to me, melanoma and colon cancer are common cancers that we're now at increased risk for. And she just couldn't understand why annual skin checks and routine colonoscopy screenings were not just ordered by our doctors to get us into the screening cycle. She had to really work to get her first colonoscopy scheduled because of her age. With the first one, they found precancerous polyps. With the next one, they found another one. If she had not had those tests, she would still not be considered of age And the situation could be dire. The age for colonoscopies has recently been lowered from 50 to 45. And one case I found said 40. More and more young people are being diagnosed with colorectal cancer. Regular checkups and staying current on screenings can help prevent finding this cancer at a more advanced stage. As I was researching this topic for today, I found a journal article on the CDC's website. It was written by the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, USPSTF. I had never heard of them. You probably haven't either. The article looks at breast cancer, cervical cancer, and colorectal cancer screenings in the United States and basically how to get people to be more compliant. So in their quest to encourage people to be more compliant, they did the math on how many annual deaths can be prevented if 100% of all people eligible for these screenings actually do them on schedule. Just like annual physicals, If you have insurance, these screenings do not have a copay or a deductible cost. They are paid 100% by insurance. Trust me, it's cheaper for the insurance companies than the cancer treatment. Here is what the numbers look like. In 2016, which happens to be the year I was diagnosed, there were 41,487 breast cancer deaths, 4,188 cervical cancer deaths, and 52,286 colorectal cancer deaths. Here's what the screening percentages looked like. 78.3% of eligible women were screened for mammograms. 79.9% were screened for cervical cancer, And only 67.7% of eligible men and women were screened for colorectal cancer. If there was 100% screening compliance, 
among all Americans with basic eligibility, not even someone like me who becomes eligible because of another type of cancer. This is just you hit the number and you check the box for being eligible. 2,821 lives would be saved from breast cancer. 6,834 lives would be saved from cervical cancer. And 35,530 lives would be saved from colorectal cancer. 35,000. So schedule those screenings. They may just save your life. When I was going through my diagnosis and treatment, a friend who happened to work in marketing for the radiology center said, if you can, have a specialist for everything. And at the time, I just had my general practitioner. They did my well woman screening and my annual physical at the same time and did my other screenings or wrote me the orders as necessary. Post-cancer is a bit of a different story. I definitely subscribe to the specialist for everything approach, and I regularly recommend to my movement clients that they establish relationships with a cardiologist if they don't have one already. Many of my clients are cancer survivors or over the age of 50. And fun fact, as a woman, you have a 50% risk for heart disease just because you're a woman. The problem is that a general practitioner is just that, a generalist. Their job should be to manage your general health and send you out to a specialist when you need their expertise. If you have high blood pressure or high cholesterol, I want you to see a cardiologist, not have the general practitioner prescribe blood pressure meds or statins. Or if your thyroid levels are off, you should be referred to an endocrinologist. This is their area of expertise. Too often, a GP prescribes thyroid meds, and this is really an art as well as science. Specialists closely monitor side effects and levels to find the right mix. They also see hundreds of patients a week with a specific issue. When something is off, you want a doctor that's an expert in that area, not a jack-of-all-trades. Unfortunately, under our current medical system, this approach to our health management can be a bit of a management challenge because there's no central location in charge of helping you stay on top of your appointments. So here's what my schedule looks like. I see my oncologist every four to six months, depending on how he's feeling about my numbers and what we talked about. In May of 2021, I'll be at the five-year mark, and I fully expect to keep seeing him at this interval. I've talked with many survivors who were cut loose at the five-year mark, and honestly, I'm happy to have the check-ins. I see my general practitioner, gynecologist, breast surgeon, plastic surgeon, cardiologist, ear, nose, and throat, and dermatologists all annually, unless there's a reason I need to see them more than once. Sometimes that happens. Suspicious mole, chemically induced menopause weirdness, sinus infection, 
So fun. I also meet people with implants who've not seen their plastic surgeon since their surgery years ago. My plastic surgeon sees me annually and sends me for an MRI every three to five years to check the implant integrity. If it's been a while, you may want to check in or establish a relationship with a new plastic surgeon so that if you do have any issues, you've got someone at the ready to help you out. And finally, a gastrointestinal doc because, well, no matter your age, if you've had any cancer, you now need to get a colonoscopy. Mine's scheduled for later this year. If you have restriction in your movement, you should have a physical therapist or work with a trainer who's highly skilled in getting people moving again. I also recommend for any survivors who've had lymph nodes removed or radiation, consult with a certified lymphedema therapist because lymphedema can happen sometimes years out from surgery and or radiation. If you're being monitored and know what to look for and what to feel for in your body, you can head off debilitating issues and manage your lymphedema before it becomes a problem. And most docs don't talk about this. And I want to add in here that a lymphedema therapist is not a massage therapist who does lymphatic drainage. Training matters. In massage therapy school, I received about 30 minutes of lymphatic drainage skills training, and it can't even really be called training. Also, there are other continuing education credit courses that people can take on lymphatic drainage, which is not the same as being a certified lymphedema therapist. CLTs know how to do manual massage around areas affected in a manner that will not create more swelling. They know how to wrap arms and legs to encourage reduction of fluid and how to measure you for compression garments. And in measuring for compression garments, we also are able to get a sense of the difference in size of limbs. These skills are not the same as a massage therapist that does lymphatic drainage. Yet, like a general practitioner, many massage therapists say they do lymphatic drainage for cancer patients when they really shouldn't. Always ask about training and certification. So to wrap up this week, schedule your annual physical and screenings. And if you're not sure what you need, just start with the physical. Your doctor can guide you through what you need based on your specific body and family history. I'm working on some tip sheets for questions to ask trainers and certified lymphedema therapists. In the meantime, before I have those up on the website, if you have questions, definitely come on over to the Facebook group. Surviving is just the beginning. You can connect with me and let me know what screenings you're scheduling. You can also go to unspokencancertruths.com where you can connect with me via email or check out past episodes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.